morning, Bethel. Um, If you can turn in your Bibles, um, our text for this morning is found in Luke 17. If you're using a pew Bible, uh, you'll find that on page 1045. There's also an outline in the bulletin that might prove helpful um, just as you follow along. Okay, Luke 17, verses 1 to 10. Um, We'll read this in just a second, but I want you to think about something here with me. Um, If you've been in the church for any amount of time, you're probably familiar with the hymn, Come Thou Fount. Uh, It's a great, great hymn. Oftentimes in the morning, I wake up, and that's one of the first prayers that kind of bubbles up is the beginning of the song that says, come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing your grace. I know I need that in the morning, so this is a great song, but come thou fount also makes me nervous. Have you ever been nervous with anything in that song? You don't have to turn there, but the last line goes like this. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. That line is true and it's dangerous. And we'll talk about that (laughs) at the end of Luke 17. Um, I wonder if you have any idea of how it could be dangerous, how that line could be dangerous if it's misunderstood. Let's read uh, Luke 17 together, and then I'll pray, and then we'll dive into our study. Jesus said to his disciples, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat? But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you may eat and drink? He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that that which we ought to have done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We have sung of your grace. It is amazing. It is full to overflowing. It's free 
I pray that we would be thrilled by it this morning and every day. And I pray that you would tune our hearts to sing your grace. I pray that we would understand the the depth of our debt as sinners before you. And I pray that we would grasp, even with greater clarity, with um, greater sweetness in our souls this morning, how great your pardon and the payment for all of that debt is for us in Christ. So, Lord, we pray that you would minister your grace to us this morning. We pray that you would increase our faith, that you would teach us what it means to trust you, what that looks like, and how to live what you said here to your disciples so that we can be to the praise of your glorious grace. So we need your grace to understand your grace so that we can believe your grace, so that we can live your grace. So please give us your grace for your glory, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so pay attention. Uh, The first point there, um, verses 1 to 3 in the outline. We'll read verses 1 to 3 again. Um, That's the way the ESV renders it. Um, NAS is be on your guard. Um, Both faithful renderings there. So Jesus said to his disciples, it's inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. Chapter 17, there's a bit of a shift, um, kind of a clear shift in themes from the material that we looked at in previous weeks in chapter 16, which focused on, the mon- on money and the law. Um, for one, there's a little bit of a shift in that, G- Jesus, that Luke says that Jesus um, explicitly focuses on his disciples here. He's addressing his disciples, whereas the last chapter he was primarily addressing the Pharisees. Um, Although, again, in Luke, we need to notice this. When he's addressing his disciples, the Pharisees and the other leaders are typically listening in. And so sometimes he'll go from, from them directly to speaking to his disciples and vice versa. It goes both ways. Um, so he moves back and forth like that. So Jesus begins speaking to his disciples here by saying, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. Or ESV says, temptations are sure to come. That's pretty clear. We live in a fallen world. Temptations to sin, stumbling blocks are inevitable. That's unavoidable. But what we must avoid is being the ones through whom those temptations or those stumbling blocks come. So back to the text, it's inevitable the stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Millstone, when they were grinding wheat or whatever, millstone is that upper stone. So it would roll around like this. It would have a hole in the middle of it and there would be a branch or a small tree that is fitted into that hole and that branch would be attached to the harness of a donkey. Okay? And that donkey would just walk around and around in a circle, grinding away. Okay? That's a big stone. And it's got a hole in it, perfect to put that chain and then hang it around your neck. I don't know if that was really in view, but 
Anyway, this is a big stone. You get the picture, weighing a couple hundred pounds, hung around your neck, and you're dumped overboard. The little ones there does not refer to children, per se. It refers to other believers who have become like little children and believed. Okay, in Matthew's account of this same, some of these same themes back in chapter 18, it's pretty clear. Jesus says, whoever then humbles himself as this child, as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And then in verse 6 it says, whoever causes one of these little ones, okay, so people who have hum, humbled themselves and become like little children, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it's better than the millstone. Okay, same, same image. So Jesus is saying it would be better to die a horrible death than to cause other followers of Jesus to stumble, to sin. That's pretty sobering, especially given how pervasive dynamics of influence are in our lives, both direct and obvious and indirect and subtle. So this, is, in a sense, is kind of a splash of cold water to the face here to pay attention to how our lives impact and influence other people's lives around us, especially other believers. Okay, we ought to be concerned about our influence on other believers, especially the weaker brothers and sisters. This is a reflex of love. Okay, so there's lots of texts along these lines. Romans 14, 13 is one. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. You can look at the context there later. It'd be helpful. Reinforcement, 1 Corinthians 8, same thing. Um, you can check that later. Now, quick qualification here. <clears throat> This is not a reflex of concern for image or, image or reputation. This is a reflex of love. Okay? I've seen this. I'm just putting this out there. I think it's a, a needful warning when you're talking about how much we ought to be concerned about how our lives impact other people's lives. Okay? I've seen some of these dynamics in my own heart and others. Have, have you seen it in your, I, I need to be a good example, thoughts and talk? some of these dynamics. I haven't told you what the dynamics are, so maybe you're not sure if you've seen it or not. Okay, hang in there. Um, have you ever, sometimes I cringe to hear how some Christians, especially parents of teens, I think this happens, but really probably junior high to college, it would apply. Sometimes how Christian parents appeal to example in the lives of their kids as far as a motivation for obedience. And what can happen is, there, I think there's an appropriate place for that, but it can be an appeal to pride and image and reputation more than it is appeal based on love. Why do you yourself want to be a good example? Why are you harping on your team to be a good example? Have you ever thought about the dynamics there? Is it because it's, well, obviously it's just bad to be a bad example? Okay. Is it possibly because it re reflects poorly on your child? which poorly reflects on you. So are we most concerned about the reputation of our teen or our own reputation? Or are we most concerned about the heart of our child before God, our hearts before God? Okay, do we want someone else to person, uh, do we want personally, do we want other people primarily to obey God 
because they were created to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And the path of obedience is the best place in the world. Glorifying God, satisfying their soul. Or do we want them to obey God so that they, so that they don't negatively influence others? Merely. <laughs> Again, negatively influencing others is not a bad thing, okay? But if you're just after spiritual damage control, that's not the goal. There's a difference here. I hope you see the subtlety of it. Um, one kind of exaggerated example is, you know, the guy who really starts getting spiritual when he meets that girl who's really spiritual. Oh, so why are you doing this? And sometimes God uses those, you know, impure motives and, and wakes somebody up through means like that, okay? Why do you want to be an example, parent? Why do you want to follow God just for the sake of your kids? Do you do certain things, not do other things for the sake of your kids because you don't want to be a bad example? Well, these people know I'm a Christian at work. It's very horizontal stuff. Sometimes what we can do is we end up using that obedience or even, in a sense, we don't want God for God. We go after this obedience. We follow the rules or whatever just so that we're concerned about our image. We think it'll negatively influence others. And it's hypocritical. Okay? So we need to be on our guard against that. We need to pay attention. And so to say that Jesus is saying our conduct, our lives impact others, that's usually important. Yes, amen. We just need to make sure that we're not being driven by image and reputation. It's love for the other person that's driving things here. Okay? So, even in the larger context, back to 12.1 of Luke, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Be on your guard. Beware. Same language, okay? So you can imagine, in, in the first century context, Jesus' context, the effect that the example and the teaching of the Pharisees had on the people around them. Okay? They loved money. They were self-righteous. They were very external in their religion. Even if they didn't claim to be. They refused to seek and welcome sinners with mercy, okay, which is why, you know, Jesus' ministry is set in such contrast to theirs. They effectively shut out sinners from the kingdom. They made it such that you had to be cleaned up to get in. You had to clean up to deserve the grace of God. They tied up heavy burdens on people, okay? So being self-righteous, being legalistic, being judgmental, and influencing others in the same direction in the church is just as abominable as being unrighteous, licentious, and throwing biblical morality out the window and influencing others in the same direction. Okay? So this is something where he's saying to his disciples, beware. Their leadership, the way that they've conducted their lives, is causing other people to sin. So disciples, beware. Don't follow in their footsteps, okay? Do you see the self-righteousness? Do you see the legalism? Do you see the judgmentalism? Do you see how they're shutting out the sinners? Don't follow in their footsteps. That's some of the context as far as this be on your guard. And then this 
be on your guard kind of functions like a hinge, okay? It's application to one and two. So this is going to come. It's really dangerous, you know, to be the one through whom the temptation comes. So be on your guard. And it's preparation for what comes next. Be on your guard for this as well. Okay, there's more reasons to pay attention in verse 3 and following. So let's look at that. Point two, stiffer backbone. Be on your guard if your brother sins, rebuke him. This is not sin police, you know, spiritual sniper rebuke. Log and spec orientation is not set aside here. Okay, self-righteousness is set aside here. Okay, if we've read the book of Luke so far, we would know that that has been set aside. This is loving rebuke. This is Proverbs 27.5 rebuke. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. This is Psalm 141.5 rebuke. Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. Okay, so this is not self-righteous rebuke. This is not sin police stuff. But it is rebuke nonetheless. And Christian rebuke is rarely easy. Most of us shrink back. Most of us are afraid to upset the apple cart. Most of us are too fearful of a bad result. Most of us are afraid to be perceived as holier than thou. Most of us question what right we have in light of our sinfulness to rebuke anyone. We need more Christ-like spiritual backbone. We need a faith with more fiber. We need to look to Jesus and become appropriately tough like Jesus. Again, look at the Gospel of Luke. He's saying, you hypocrites, you snakes. I mean, he's saying some really hard things, and he's saying them in love. So Sometimes we can be too sentimental. We need a stiffer spiritual backbone. We need to be on guard against our tendency to shrink back out of fear. We need to be on guard uh, against those things, those dynamics of, of fear. And we need to be driven by Jesus, by faith in Jesus, not by fear of man. Okay, we also need a softer heart. Verses 3 and 4. Be on your guard if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. Okay, so is it natural to really forgive? I mean, some people, oh, oh, it's okay, it's okay. <laughs> well, no, it's not okay. Sin is not okay. But sometimes... They don't really want to make true peace. They just want to, you know, brush it by and move on. Maybe they give lip service forgiveness because they know they should, but then it's followed up by regular rehearsal and stewing over the wrong done. Forgiveness is hard. But the, and, and this forgiveness, this is lavish, scandalous forgiveness. I mean, wouldn't you question the uh, sincerity of the person if they're doing it seven times? And coming back, I'm sorry. This is, I have been forgiven an infinite debt forgiveness. How can I not forgive this relative pocket chain sin? This is, I am prone to wander. I'm slow to learn. 
How can I not extend patience and grace to you, forgiveness? And obviously the point of Jesus saying seven sins, seven repentances, seven pardons is not to make seven some magic number. Okay, there was a view in Judaism at the time that forgiving three times a day was generous. Okay, so this really ups the ante. But the point is not that you can stop once you've hit the seven threshold. Ding, you know, a little, okay, I'm done with you for today. You've used your quota. The point is that you have an extremely merciful and forgiving disposition. So, <laughs> this might sound like a lot, seven times in one day, really? Okay, is that like realistic, you know, this regular and repeated? But have you ever spent the day with kids who are trying to play together? <laughs> and we're just big kids trying to play together, not getting along very well. I mean, have you ever gone through a whole day as a married couple and considered how many times you should have repented and sought forgiveness? Have you ever gone on a missions trip or worked closely with another Christian for an entire day, especially if the heat was turned up? <laughs> then you start to think, okay, seven might not be so, like, this is, this is practical. Okay, we need supernatural grace to forgive and love as generously as this. Now, <clears throat> put those two together. Stiffer backbone, spiritual backbone, and softer hearts. This topic I have come back to again and again in my thoughts, even just in the last few years, because that combination is so rare. Okay? I, I pray this regularly for my own heart, for our church as a whole, that we would be tougher and tenderer. That's actually, it's not more tender. I thought it was more tender. It's tenderer. <laughs> anyway, okay. Um, we're oftentimes soft when we should be firm. And we are hard when we should be soft and gracious. It is easier to talk about someone than to talk to someone about sin in their life. Require some spiritual backbone and toughness to refrain and to directly approach the person that we need to approach. It's easier to be judgmental and critical and label people than it is to forgive them and really clear the slate. You know what? We actually get it backwards oftentimes. We don't have a strong enough backbone to love people directly with a rebuke, and we're often soft and so we're soft in that way, and we're hard in the sense that we don't really forgive, even if we might give lip service over and over again. And then there's some people, <clears throat> you know, who are kind of the forgiving types, okay? They're not the rebuking types. Maybe forgiveness is more natural. But maybe that forgiveness is more natural than supernatural. Maybe they just are easygoing. That's not what Jesus is after here. So it's a sign of grace to truly forgive, especially in repeated contexts like this. It's a sign of the presence and the power of the Spirit of God. Okay, especially when non-confrontational types can rebuke like Jesus is talking about here. 
And then those who are, quote-unquote, not the merciful types, for whom rebuke might be more, quote-unquote, natural, when they humbly and sincerely and repeatedly forgive others with this gracious, soft spirit, that is evidence of God's grace and His Spirit. So this combination, strong backbone, soft heart, such a rare combination. It's rare in individuals. It is rare in the atmosphere of churches. Do you want to be this kind of Christ-like tough and Christ-like tender? Do you want our church to be this kind of Christ-like tough, Christ-like tender? I hope that's what you want. I hope that you seek it personally. I hope you pray for it for us as a whole. It starts with us each applying texts like this and seeking the Spirit's help on a daily basis. So the need for help to live this out is certainly felt by the the disciples. Look how they respond in verse 5. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Okay, so here's this hinge. And the fact that this text hinges, is, is the hinge for this section, shows us that the instruction on faith is central to the concerns of the whole section. Okay? So how does Jesus help his disciples? Well, he pulls them into the school of faith. He gives them two lessons here. You read through this and you can think this is, you know, how does he get from here to there to there? But there are two lessons of faith, one mainly about God and the need for a bigger view of him in verse 6, and one mainly about ourselves and the need for a smaller view of ourselves in verses 7 to 10. Okay, so lesson one, verse 6, faith is not about faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Okay, so mustard seed, as you know, proverbial for its small size. The mulberry tree was proverbial for its deep and strong root system. Okay, so Jesus is obviously not recommending that they literally attempt this. He's using this as an example of of doing the impossible. So you pick a tree that has this crazy, gnarly, extensive root system, and you say, there, you just, if you have faith like a mustard seed, really small, you could do this really big impossible thing. And he uses the mulberry tree as an example. The point of the illustration is tiny faith can do the impossible. But the question that begs to be answered is why? Why can tiny faith do the impossible? Because faith isn't about faith. The real power is in the object of faith. It has everything to do with the power of the one to whom we pray. And that is an important lesson when we're overwhelmed by what it means to follow Jesus. We can think that the real secret is finding more and stronger and more sincere, more zealous faith. I need, I need, I need to, you know, when you're focusing, you're focusing, you're fo- focusing in here and here and here. That's not where the power is. That's not where the answer is. What we really need is a clearer vision of the strength and the grace of the one in whom we believe, the one to whom we pray. Okay, I heard this. Um, I've shared this with a couple of you personally, um, but I saw this brief little clip of an illustration that Don Carson gave um, at a conference, uh, one of my seminary professors that um, just 
wonderful gift to the church, written a lot of commentaries and other books. Um, so he gives this little story. He says, imagine there's these two Jewish gentlemen at the time of the Passover, like Exodus. They're still in Goshen, okay, um, prior to uh, actually heading out, being led out by Moses. And he says, Smith and Brown. It's Mr. Smith and Mr. Brown, okay? So Mr. Smith says, you've heard that the angel of death, death is passing, pa- passing through tonight. Brown says, yes, of course. We, we all know about it. Moses has instructed us. Smith says, well, have you done what we've been told to do? Have you slaughtered the lamb? You know, you're about to eat the whole meal. You've sprinkled the blood on the lintel and the doorpost, right? Brown, yes, yes, of course. Smith says, you know, I've done it too. Man, am I worried. Just think of the things that we've seen lately. Frogs. You know, he rehearses some of these plagues and how horrible they are. The Nile turning to blood. That plague of darkness. And now this angel of death is coming through the land tonight. I mean, I've got a lot of kids, but I really love my firstborn. Firstborn of the cattle and everything. I'm just really anxious about it all. Brown says, what are you worried about? What God says about sprinkling the blood? You'll be safe. Smith, I, I know, I know, but with the circumstances like these, this is pretty scary stuff. So that night, the angel passed through the land, and Carson asked the question, which man lost his son, Smith or Brown? And the answer is, neither. Because the salvation of the Son, the deliverance of the Son, did not depend on the strength or the intensity of the faith, but on the object of the faith. So the disciples are sobered. Increase our faith. Okay. I'm going to pull you into the school of faith here. Let me teach you about faith. Lesson one. Faith is not about faith. Faith, by definition, looks away from itself. Faith's power is not in itself, in its size or in its intensity. Faith's power is in its object, okay? I, I don't mean to be silly here, but this is, this is an, another way of saying it, kind of in the negative. You can obviously be very, very sincere and zealous about something that's not true or real. You could believe that invisible purple unicorns rule the universe and that if you wear purple, you will be blessed. It doesn't matter how sincere and zealous and intense your faith. If you are not being blessed, even though you're decked out in purple from your split ends to the toes of your, you know, to the tips of your purple-toed shoes, it's not because you need an increase of faith. You need a different object. So that's lesson one. Lesson two, faith knows its place, verses 7 to 10. Which of you, having a slave, plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he's come in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat? But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you may eat and drink? He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded, you say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Do you read the Bible honestly? I mean, like, does that offend you? This offends me. On the face of it, this is offensive. 
It seems like Jesus condones slavery. It seems as if Jesus dismisses common courtesy (laughs) and a humble, loving disposition of master towards slaves. It seems as if Jesus assumes this selfish, serve-me-first orientation on the part of employers or masters. So the slave works outside all day, comes inside, (laughs) and the man... Well, this is normal. Does that bother any of you? <laughs> okay. It, it, hopefully the, the botherment will kind of be resolved, but we need to read the Bible honestly and wrestle with the text, and when there's something like that, press into it rather than ignore it. Okay, so first, this is not an allegory. He's not saying that he's the master and you're the slave. Okay, so... He's, he's certainly not condoning the Jim Crow South associations that we tend to bring to the text when we think of slavery, okay? If we bring that, we will certainly be offended, um, which, again, that's, I think that's part of why it bothers me. It's like, why are you just saying this without critique? Slavery in first century is a little bit different than that, um, I won't get into those details at this point. He's, he's also not saying don't be nice to your employees, okay? What he's doing is he's taking an image from common village life. Which of you? He doesn't turn and use it until verse 10. Okay, so once again, we have to be careful with the details. The key to understanding what Jesus is saying here and not saying is found in verse 9. Look at it. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? The translation makes us think that Jesus is saying the master shouldn't be polite and courteous to his slave. Okay? But that's not the meaning here. I, I, don't, I, I think another alternative would be challenging as well. Um, translation's a tough business <laughs> to do it faithfully. Okay? Jesus is not encouraging us to be rude and refuse to say thank you at the restaurant. Okay? That's, that's not the application here. This is not even a reference to gratitude in the normal sense. It's not the point at all. Translation, I know, makes it hard to see, but finding, like I said, finding a clear alternative, it it takes some unpacking, so it'd be hard to just pop a a phrase in there maybe. The word thank in verse 9 is the word for grace. Okay? Charis. Okay, karin here in its form here, but charis, the word for grace. We'll come back to that. There's a reason why I'm mentioning that now. It's the same word for credit back in Luke 6. Do you remember that? If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? It'd be a little confusing if it just said, what grace is that to you? But the point is, is it doesn't take any grace to love those who love you. Everybody does that. Anybody, you know, naturally can do that. It takes grace to love those who are unlovely and with whom there may be no return. So here's the point. The point is that the slave will never, by simply doing his duty, put the master in his debt. He will never switch roles simply as a result of his obedience to his job description. Okay? He will never become the benefactor. A slave will never, by means of doing his duties, put his master in his debt. Okay? This is not about... Courtesy gratitude. It's about who is the benefactor and who is the beneficiary. Think of an illustration with just young children. You give them money to buy a Christmas present. 
they buy you a present. You say, thank you. I love it. Okay? Even if, what am I going to do with this? Okay? When's the next white elephant? Okay? So you say thank you, but you don't become truly dependent on your child because of their gift to you because it was your money and your place as the benefactor and their place as the beneficiary would never change. Okay? Even though you say thank you. Different issues. So, this is totally contrary to the Pharisees' working worldview. They obey to get the blessings, like the older brother, okay? Just thinking of some context here. I've served you all this time, and this is what I get. They used their service to gain, they used their religiosity to gain status and honor in this life. So in a sense, they think they're putting God, they think they are putting God in their debt as if he must repay them for their obedience. You see that? And Jesus is saying, no, pay attention. Be on guard against this older brother heart. Okay, it is the older brother who thinks that his faithful, hardworking sacrifice, without complaining, of course, merits him a little extra favor. And then someone lets you down, or it seems like God lets you down, and what do you do? You finally snap and you say, after all I've done for you, this is what I get. Be on your guard. We are quite prone to pride when we have sacrificed and obeyed much. And we start to think that we deserve. And we have rights. And our obedience is meriting some sort of life that we want, as if we could put God in our debt. The milder question is posed by Peter in Luke 18 later. Behold, we've left our own homes and followed you. And Jesus said, you can never outgive me. <laughs> like, please don't ever think it's ultimately a sacrifice. Truly, I say to you, there's no one who's left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. So, you could also think of the pagan worship context, okay? Those who read the book of Luke outside of Israel. The worldview is, and this is very much the worldview in our, our day and age as well, you scratch your God's back, your God scratches yours. Back then it was food sacrifices, drink offerings, other sacrifices. Why did you do that stuff? To keep the cranky, moody, easily irritated God happy. If you get on their bad side, you will pay. Drought, infertility, bad luck, etc. So you propitiate the God. You appease the God with your obedience, and then you earn a blessing. If you do it right, you're set. You've earned their favor. You honor your God, and your God will honor you. And that is not the gospel. That's why Jesus says, be on your guard. The one true God is completely different. Psalm 50 that Bill read. If I was hungry, I would not come to you. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. Here's the deal. You call upon me in the day of trouble. I deliver you and you glorify me. 
by just thanking me. I don't need anything here. I'm here to give. I'm not served by human hands as though I need anything, but I myself give to all men, life and breath and everything. Isn't that great? <laughs> we don't have to work for God's grace. We work from receiving God's grace. So we don't ever obligate God by our service. One guy named, I don't even know how to pronounce this last name, Resigue or something like that, stated it this way. Such a helpful summary. Obedience is based on divine initiative and human obligation rather than on human initiative and divine obligation. <laughs> Obedience is based on divine initiative. Grace comes down and then we are able to obliged to obey rather than on our initiative and then God is obliged to bless us. Or Romans 11, 35 and 36, who has given to God that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So one of the ways the Lord increases his disciples' faith here is by increasing their view of God and then decreasing, remember the mulberry tree, it's the size of the object, not the size of the faith. And then secondly, second lesson, decreasing the view of themselves and their rights. So here's the sweet thing. On our worst days, I mean, how many bad days do you have? You feel like your faith is like this barely smoldering Remember, on our worst days, the power's not in us. It's in God. We can be encouraged to obey and keep going. And on our best days, no matter how much obedience and sacrifice, we're still just completely indebted slaves. We're debtors to mercy. We'll never put God in our debt. And we're going to need that if we're going to need to forgive our brothers seven times in a day. We need to make sure we don't think too highly of ourselves and our rights. So isn't this just a beautiful pointer to the gospel of grace? It's a clear segue to the table, which we're going to move to in just a minute. So as we approach the table, come thou fount. Let's go back to that. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. What does that mean? Does that mean that God in a sense, co-signed or fronted us the loan for our spiritual house so that we could be at home with him. And then we better stay faithful to that amortization schedule. I mean, of course you can't pay it all back, but at least you better get started and start to try. Is that how grace works? That is blasphemy. Guess what, folks? We only go deeper into debt every day forever. Amen? It's great. We came to the table with debt, an infinite debt, an infinite debt that we could never pay for, ever, 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 ever. Hell is eternal, and it is just. Jesus pays the debt. It's finished. It's completely paid for. Amen. And then, so by grace you've been saved. 
through faith, not by works. No one can boast. And then we're God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that he ordained beforehand that we should walk in them. And he's going to give us grace for every one of them. So guess what? When you obey, you're more indebted because he gave you the grace to obey. He planned that work and then he gave you the grace to do the work. Isn't that beautiful? The glory of always going deeper into debt. If we have some sort of weird payback system as if, as if we could somehow just a little bit earn it. You know, kind of like when somebody has you over for dinner, you feel like you need to reciprocate so that, so that you're not as much in debt. If you relate to God that way, you are in danger. This is be on your guard. So boasting is excluded except in the cross that pays our debt. What do you have that you did not receive? Nothing. <laughs> nothing. Absolutely nothing. And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? We have been bought with a price. We should glorify God in our bodies, not by trying to pay him back, but by calling for more grace, to live by his grace today and tomorrow to do things that are hard, like rebuking my brother that needs rebuked in love, by forgiving my brother or sister that needs forgiven. And man, I'm just stewing on this, Lord. I need grace to do this. <laughs> the gospel enables that. It empowers that. So it's so appropriate that we sing and route to the table Jesus, thank you. Jesus is never going to say thank you to us like this, and that is good news, folks. <laughs> that is not like, oh, oh, I'm, I'm hurt. He's not going to say, no, no, no. You don't want this kind of setup in the world because nobody would go to heaven. So, Chorus, he's not going to say thank you. You know that this table is oftentimes in certain uh, in certain <laughs> traditions called the Eucharist. Do you hear it? Eucharist. In 1 Corinthians 11, Jesus broke the bread, giving thanks. Eucharisteo, okay? It's the same word. So we get to come to this table <laughs> and as humble servants who've been who've been pardoned of an infinite debt, we say, thank you. We call out for more grace. That's why we're coming to this table, because we are completely debtors to grace. We love being debtors to grace, and we will be debtors to grace for eternity. <laughs> Amen? Thank you, Jesus. Amen.